calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, friend. Follow me. We're going somewhere dark, somewhere dangerous. Most people would never dare enter the place we are going. There's no telling what horrors we'll find, what terrors we'll uncover. Don't say I didn't warn you. We might discover terrible monsters lurking there. Be careful, they could follow you out. Or maybe they're already inside you. Are you afraid? Good. Now you are ready to enter the Warning Woods. Lionel Reed was a man of science. He had been a professor once, but when his daughter Jackie was still too young to remember, Lionel published a book on meditation that sold well enough for him to quit teaching. He received many offers from other universities, but he turned them all down. I could teach, but I would rather learn, Lionel would tell his wife Nora. I still have so much to explore. And explore he did. Lionel's meditation methods included various ways of manipulating brain frequencies. He used alpha waves, binaural beats, and other vibrational methods of achieving very specific mental states. His office was full of strange trinkets, mostly useless gimmicks, but some which had profound effects on the mind. Others didn't have a direct use on the brain, but helped Lionel observe the effects of vibrational frequencies. One such item was a small square table with four elevated metal spheres, one at each corner. These reflective spheres were situated atop triangle points which rose from each corner. Dry sand covered the surface of the table, and when someone pressed one of the several buttons on the table's side, the spheres would vibrate at a particular frequency, and the sand would instantaneously move into a symmetrical abstract shape. These types of devices have grown more popular in recent years, but in Lionel's time, he possessed the only one he had ever seen, and his early model had far more power than necessary. Lionel had not yet determined a practical purpose for the sand table, but he kept it around because his daughter Jackie liked to play with it. Lionel enjoyed having her in his office as long as she let him work, and the table kept her occupied. She quickly got bored of the seven shapes the table made by default and started finding more creative ways to interact with it. One way to manipulate the vibrations, she discovered, was to touch one of the spheres while pushing a button. This led to some chaotic variations of the default shapes. 
One evening when Jackie was six years old, she asked her father, Could you come over here and push the button for me? Lionel looked up from his computer and said, I'm a little busy at the moment, sweetie. Give me a few minutes to wrap up. Sure, Jackie answered. She ruffled her smooth little brow as she searched for another solution. Then, as if receiving a vibration from the universe, the idea came to her. She stood in front of the button panel and stretched out her arms to put her hands on two spheres at once. Then, she pressed one of the buttons with her knee. Lionel wasn't paying attention. He was nose deep in a recent study when he heard his daughter collapse. Lionel sprang up from his chair and ran to Jackie's side. She lay sprawled on the floor, stiff and violently shaking. Nora, Lionel called, wrapping his arms around his daughter. Nora, come quick. Nora soon appeared in the doorway. Oh my God, it's a seizure, she gasped. She dropped to her knees and took Jackie up in her arms. As she pried Jackie's locked jaw open, she asked Lionel for his wallet. He produced the leather bifold and handed it to his wife. She wedged the wallet between her daughter's teeth to prevent the child from biting her own tongue and asked Lionel what happened. I didn't see, Lionel said. She was playing with the... He trailed off and looked at the sand table. Jackie's experiment had produced half a pattern. The rest of the sand had scattered into a formless mess. Jackie's spasms ended abruptly. She went completely still in Nora's arms, and the wallet fell from her mouth like an enormous dead moth. Lionel grabbed her small wrist in his meaty hand and felt for a pulse. Before he located it, Jackie's eyes burst open. The little girl sucked in air, then coughed. Momentary relief washed over her parents right before Jackie started screaming. What is it, Jackie? What's wrong? Nora asked. Jackie wormed out of her mother's arms and slid backward across the office floor on her butt. She continued screaming even after she hit the wall and drew her legs in close to her chest. Jackie, stop, please. Just tell us what's wrong, Lionel begged. Jackie raised a hand and pointed it behind him. Lionel turned, but all he saw was his bookshelf. Jackie could not see the bookshelf. Her view was blocked by a towering man wearing camouflage from head to toe. He had a camo baseball cap on his head that had tipped forward, shadowing his bulging, redded eyes. Blood poured from the man's nose and the place where his jaw used to be. It was now just a gaping red hole with a jagged row of broken or missing teeth lining the top. His tongue waggled loosely like a plastic worm fighting against extermination. Blood had saturated his greenish-brown coat, turning it almost black. The man's hair hung down in a flap from the back of his head, and there was something white poking out from beneath it. Lionel stood up, unknowingly putting himself between the camo man and his daughter. Jackie took advantage of this and ran from the room. When they followed her, she told her parents there was a ghost in her father's office, but of course they didn't believe her. Nora wanted to take Jackie to the emergency room right away, so they loaded her into the car. Jackie spent the whole drive blurry-eyed with tears. Lionel dropped Nora and Jackie off at the ER entrance and went to park the car. Nora walked Jackie in slowly. Inside, Jackie saw the waiting room was packed. She thought there was maybe 200 people milling about in the room, shoved together like crayons in a brand new box. Most of them were terribly injured, fatally even. Jackie had never seen an emergency room before and wondered how so many people were getting hurt all the time. Nora seemed completely unfazed by the crowd. She went straight up to the desk and told the clerk her daughter had had a seizure and needed to be examined. The doctor will be with you very soon, the clerk said. Jackie wondered how the doctor was going to get around to everyone. There was a man with a metal rod sticking through his neck, a child laying on the ground with only one arm and a flattened leg. 
a woman covered in swollen red circles with a big, round neck and a purple face. Let's find a spot to sit, Nora said. Jackie didn't see any open chairs, but as her mother walked towards a chair in which a little boy sat, he got up and moved out of her way. A fat, blue-skinned man in the chair next to the boy got up as well. Nora sat in the boy's chair, and Jackie in the fat man's. The boy lingered near them. Jackie saw he had a lump on one side of his neck that made his head tilt at an angle, and his hair looked matted and sticky. Hello, she said politely. The boy looked startled. Where am I? he asked. The hospital. Are you hurt? Nora looked at her daughter with apprehensive curiosity. Yeah, I think so, the boy said. He raised a tender hand to the back of his head. I fell out of a tree and my mom brought me here. Do you see her? Jackie looked around but said, I don't know what she looks like. I don't either. I can't remember, the boy replied. Who are you talking to? Nora asked. Jackie looked up and gestured at the boy standing in front of her. Nora scrunched her eyebrows and said, There's no one there, Jackie. Jackie turned back to the boy who looked scared now. His eyes shifted from side to side. Jackie realized he couldn't move his head or neck. Are you a ghost? She asked. No, I don't... I can't... Am I? Tears started to pour from the boy's eyes. Jackie reached out and put a hand on his shoulder, and it passed right through him. You are, she said loudly enough to make Nora uncomfortable. The boy stammered, but, but that means... And before Jackie's eyes, he faded away. Just before he disappeared completely, he smiled and shouted, Mom! Jackie was dumbstruck. A door opened and a nurse called her name, but she didn't hear. Nora had to pull her up from her chair and lead her to the nurse. The doctor couldn't find anything wrong with her that night. When they got home, Jackie walked past her father's office and stopped. She had forgotten about the bloody camo man until that moment. She wondered if he was still in there. Cautiously, she pushed the door open. It was dark inside, but there was just enough light from the half moon to trace shadowy outlines of the office. Standing in the center was a tall, dark form Jackie knew must belong to the camo man. She froze, suddenly terrified of him again. His moon-glowing shape turned slightly towards her, and the words poured out of Jackie's mouth like ice from a glass. You're a ghost. She slammed the door and put her back against it, panting. Once she got a hold of herself, she pressed an ear to the door and listened. She couldn't hear anyone inside the office. No breathing, no shuffling around. Cautiously, she turned the knob and cracked the door open again. When she peered in, she saw the man staring at his own hands. He lifted them to his face and felt the space where his jaw used to be. Then he raised one of them behind his head and closed the flap of hair, scalp, and bone that hung there. The man bowed his head sadly and faded away. Jackie breathed easily again. As an innocent child, Jackie loved her gift. Whenever she came across a spirit, she told them they had died and they vanished. She felt like she had been granted a superpower. She could protect herself and her friends and family, all by simply saying those simple words, You're a ghost. As she grew older, a sense of responsibility began to overcome her. This moral obligation is what started to unravel Jackie Reed. She graduated high school and got accepted at Iowa State University. This marked the beginning of her independence, of adulthood, but also the first time in her life she would consistently be in brand new places. 
These places were all ripe with wandering spirits. She saw them lingering in the backs of classrooms, traversing between floors of the dormitory. She even found one eternally bleeding out into the co-ed shower drain. She saw so many ghosts in so many ghastly states that she had to train herself not to react to them. She had to develop an instinct for who was alive and who wasn't. She realized the need for this when she was walking home with a cute classmate and saw a young man standing on top of a parking ramp. She yelled and pointed at him. She shouted at him not to jump. As she fumbled for her phone to call for help, her classmate stared, utterly bewildered. It then dawned on Jackie that she was seeing the preview to a movie that had already been shot. She still couldn't help but flinch as the student's ghost hit the grass. That cute classmate never spoke to Jackie again. She did make a few friends, but Jackie could never bring herself to go out and do anything fun with them. Every day, during the hustle and bustle of college life, she would pass by lingering spirits who just needed to hear her words to move on. Jackie had no idea what waited for them beyond this earth, but she couldn't imagine it would be worse than being trapped in their state of death forever. Anytime she tried to have fun, her thoughts always turned to some car accident victim crying and bleeding on the sidewalk, or a tragically young student claimed by cancer, already withered to nothing, and yet forever fading further. And so, when her scheduled day ended, Jackie would retrace her footsteps, finding each ghost and casting them off to the beyond. She received no reward for her sacrifice besides the arbitrary sense of moral fulfillment. Jackie graduated with a mediocre transcript and unimpressive resume. Two of the friends she had somehow managed to keep had gotten married, one was already pregnant, and a third had landed an incredible job with an insurance company in Chicago. Jackie had no prospects, either career or relational, but when she stopped to think about it, she was glad not to have any ambition. Ambition would have only led her to disappointment. After all, how could she ever hold down a job when her mind would constantly be on the lost souls wandering outside? How could she possibly start a family when so much of her attention would be long to the long-dead strangers? Thus, Jackie became a full-time shepherdess of the dead. She moved out to Chicago where her friends from college helped her find a small apartment with a nurse who worked nights. The arrangement couldn't have been more convenient since Jackie was hardly there during the day and would usually come home after her roommate had left for work. Chicago is a city plagued by death. Everywhere Jackie went, she found a literal crowd of ghosts. She paid her bills by advertising her services online. Her ads read, Think your home is haunted? It probably is. Call Jackie Reed to send your ghosts to a home of their own. She charged $50 per visit and usually managed to snag one or two clients per day. When she could, she would walk to these appointments so she could cast away spirits on the street. People eventually began to recognize her as the crazy lady who walks down the street telling hustling commuters they're dead. She started to look crazy, too. As she spent more and more time on the streets sending souls onward, she spent less and less time taking care of herself. Her hygiene plummeted. She barely ate anything. To top it off, she started smoking cigarettes just to keep herself going. The nicotine kept her underslept, underfed brain running until her body gave out each day. By the time she turned 26, Jackie had grown utterly complacent. She didn't notice the stares, the laughs, the jeers. She had lost any remaining passion for the dead and now only continued to help them because if she stopped, she would be racked by suicidal guilt. She started refusing calls for help if she already had made enough money to pay off the bills that week. Occasionally, she would call one of them back if she ended up needing extra cash for cigarettes. And this 
is how Jackie learned her ability to see spirits included more than ghosts of the dead. She had turned the woman down at first. Jackie was burnt out. She had made rent and had a meager amount of food in the fridge, so she didn't need the money. Not until she reached into her pocket and pulled out an empty box of camels. Jackie redialed the woman's number and told her she would be there that afternoon. She had to take a cab out to the woman's house. She made note of her fare to include it in the bill. When she arrived, there was a small blue car parked in front of the house with two small pallid boys standing beside it. She estimated them to be between 7 and 10 years old. A man came out of the house carrying two suitcases down six steps to the car. He saw her, and she noted dark bags under his eyes. You must be Jackie, he said flatly. I am, Jackie replied. June is inside. I'm taking the kids to a hotel. If you can't tell, we've really been through it. We've been through hell. I don't know what it is you do exactly, but if you can help us, if you can get these poor kids some sleep, I'll double your rate. I swear to God I will. Jackie nodded and looked at the children emotionlessly. Both looked exhausted to the point of tears. She left the three of them by the car and went up to the house. It had a formidable brick exterior and large dark windows. June, the woman who had called her, greeted Jackie at the door. She wore a wrinkled journey t-shirt and paint-stained sweatpants. Her hair was matted in a few places and stuck out like static in the rest. Her eyes were as darkly outlined as her husband's, some of which was due to days-old mascara that had smeared into her skin. "'Thank God you're here,' she said. The enthusiasm in her words was not reflected in her tone. "'Show me where the activity happens,' Jackie said. The woman spread her arms wide and turned in a slow circle. "'It's everywhere.' It happens at any given time in any given place. At first it only happened to the kids, but now it's affecting all of us. How does it manifest? Jackie asked. June gave her a vacant look. Jackie explained. Manifest. Show up. Reveal itself. How do you know it's here? Oh, sorry. I'm a bit tired, June replied. Footsteps, knocking, rooms turning cold for no reason. The usual stuff, I guess. Jackie stepped into the living room. Cold spots belonged in the usual stuff category, but she had never heard of entire rooms getting cold. And footsteps and knocking only happened in movies, as far as she knew. In fact, many of her clients had told her they almost hadn't called her because such noises never occurred. She had explained countless times that Hollywood knows nothing about real ghosts. Anything else? Jackie asked. She continued to walk through the first floor, but turned around when June didn't immediately answer her question. She saw June had stopped and looked like she was about to cry. Yes, um, June started. She had to pause to collect herself. The reason Howie, my husband, is taking the kids away is, um, Tyler, my older son, tried to kill his brother Will last night. Now it was Jackie's turn to freeze. We heard Will screaming and ran into his room and found Tyler straddling him and choking the life out of him. Jackie said, Listen, June, is it? I don't... No, June said with unnecessary volume. You listen. When we pulled Tyler off his brother, he opened his eyes and looked around like he was seeing that room for the first time. He had no idea what he was doing. He wasn't in control of himself. Whatever has been tormenting us, our family, took over him and almost killed one of our boys. Jackie sensed the temperature in the room dropping. She whirled around to confront the spirit, but didn't see anyone there with them. In the wall, a board creaked with sinister slowness. 
This isn't right, Jackie said aloud, but mostly to herself. I can always see them. I can always see the dead, but I don't see anyone here. You feel it too? June asked. Jackie nodded. You should look upstairs. Maybe you'll see it up there. Jackie didn't want to go upstairs. She had stopped fearing the deceased almost two decades ago, but here, the clenching fist of terror had wrapped around her heart. Something evil was in this house. Something that was not lost or trapped. Something that wanted to be there. I don't think I can help you, Jackie said, and watched June's face fall. Maybe you should call a priest or... Before she could finish speaking, three echoing bangs reverberated throughout the house. The ceiling vibrated above them, the windows rattled in their panes, and the lights flickered momentarily. It can't be a priest, June said, stoic and unfazed. It has to be you. We've tried everything else. No one else has been able to help. Jackie forced a grim nod and said, Take me upstairs. It was time to test the extent of her abilities. June led her through a door to a narrow staircase. It opened up to a short hallway with four doors, all of which were shut. This seemed to give June pause. What's wrong? Jackie asked. I was just up here before you came, June said. I watched your cab pull up from our bedroom at the end of the hall. The bathroom door was closed, but the bedrooms were open. I guess we know what that sound was, Jackie said. June swallowed. Her throat sounded sticky and dry. The pair listened for a few seconds but heard nothing. Jackie stared at the four closed doors, wondering which one to open first. In the end, she decided just to go in order, starting with the door directly to her right. That's Will's room, June said. Jackie held a finger to her lips and turned the doorknob. She cracked the door open and saw sunlight coming through Will's window. It lit up the whole room, showing no one inside. Jackie entered the room, confident it was empty. For good measure, she checked Will's closet, but found no one inside. Back in the hallway, Jackie and June went to the next door on the right. This was the large bathroom shared by the two boys. It was dark and windowless, but when Jackie flipped on the light, all they saw was the empty bathroom. Jackie was thankful the shower curtain had already been drawn aside. She thought having to check behind that curtain would have given her a panic attack. Next, the women went to June and Howie's bedroom. Jackie peeked through the door and saw nothing, but felt a splash of cold air on her cheek. Stay here, she told June. Jackie pushed the door open with a trembling hand. She couldn't be sure she shook due to fear, the pointed chill in the air, or nicotine withdrawal. With the door fully open, Jackie could take in most of the room. The curtains had been drawn in front of a double sliding door, which presumably led out to a patio. The curtains blocked out the afternoon sun, letting only a few stray beams through. Jackie stepped into the cold, dull room. Like in the first two rooms, she saw nothing, but in here, she felt it. Howie and June had a large closet which June had closed, unfortunately. Jackie considered opening it, but first, there was another door. She called back to June in the doorway to ask what it was. Oh, that's our bathroom, June replied. Great, Jackie thought. I bet there's another shower curtain in here. The door was closed but not latched. She gave it a gentle push and it swung open easily. Behind the door, Jackie saw a figure standing directly across from her. She shouted and jumped back. June unleashed a terrified scream and ran halfway down the hall before she heard the last sound she would have expected. Laughter. Jackie was nearly doubled over with laughter and was pointing into the bathroom. Had she gone mad? 
Had the spirit possessed her too? The, the, the mirror, June. I saw myself in the mirror, Jackie said between spurts of laughter. June stood still in the doorway, then burst into her own laughter. The preceding tension made the mistake that much funnier. Jackie shook her head, wiped her brow, and stood up straight again. She looked back at the mirror, but this time there were two figures. Again, she shrieked. Behind her reflection stood a short, bald man with skin the color of dark red clay. He was looking into her eyes with his own wide yellow ones. Jackie felt his cold breath on her neck and spun around, but he wasn't there. June stood still as a statue in the doorframe, now confused and unsure how to respond. I saw him. He's here, Jackie said. June shrunk a little. He's not... not what I normally see. He's not a ghost, I mean. How do you know? June whispered. Her eyes darted to each corner of the room in turn. She felt something cold pass through her, almost like a gust of wind cutting through a jacket. Because I can see the dead ones and they can see me. They don't understand their lives have ended. They don't creep around and hide. And they still look like people. What does he look like? June asked. She immediately regretted this question, already missing the bliss of ignorance. After a moment's pause, just long enough to feel her heart settle, Jackie said, He looks like something that never deserved to live. The final door, Tyler's bedroom door, slammed. Then it slammed again. June cried out and fell. Jackie caught her arm. The door down the hall continued to open and slammed shut again and again. There was something else, too. A low chanting, barely audible, punctuated by each slam. Do something, please, June cried. Jackie looked into her eyes and saw she was gone. Terror had possessed this poor woman just as the spirit down the hall had possessed her son. Jackie looked behind herself at the curtained sliding door. She considered going out onto that patio and climbing down to safety, but could she leave this withered, trembling mother behind? She thought she could, actually. She took one last look at June's weak, cowering form and stepped toward the curtains. But then she remembered the camo man. She remembered how scared she had been of his towering, bloodied form as a little girl. She drew back the curtain. The patio looked down on the street, and there was Will, a little boy just barely older than she was when she saw her first ghost, and he looked scared. Tired, too, but mostly scared. She thought back on the miserable years she had collected since she was that age, all because of a spiritual anomaly. She might have been able to abandon June, but not the little boy. She couldn't curse him to a life like her own. Jackie left June by the bed and stomped down the hall. She reached Tyler's door just as it slammed and grabbed the knob firmly. She felt it pull away from her but maintained her grip. Once the door went still, she opened it forcefully and stepped into the room. It felt like walking into an industrial freezer. Show yourself, she yelled. Let me see you again. A gritty voice behind her said, If that's what you want. She spun around and came face to face with the ugly spirit she had seen in the bathroom mirror. Before she could react, he lurched towards her. He wrapped impossibly long fingers all the way around her neck with just one hand and lifted her off the floor. Not what you're used to, am I, Jackie? He growled. His hand tightened, then threw her across the room. She struck a dresser and collapsed on the floor. Faintly, she heard footsteps, presumably June's, running down the hall. The bedroom door slammed shut on its own before anyone appeared to help her, though. The hideous entity stepped toward her, grinning madly. 
You've been starving me, shepherdess, it said. Don't you know I feast on lost souls? Jackie tried to respond but felt a sharp pain in her chest. She tried gasping for air but she couldn't fill her lungs. It felt like she was drowning. The spirit, the demon, took another step toward her as her vision started to fade. But something else moved behind it. She saw the clothes hanging in Tyler's closet slide away and someone stepped out of them. She didn't recognize him at first, not with his head all put together, not with his clothes rid of bloodstains. It was the camo man. Only now he didn't look sad and lost. He looked angry, but in a righteous way, like a protective father. The camo man crossed the room and caught the demon around its neck with one powerful arm. It hissed at him. In the background of their struggle, more vaguely familiar forms emerged from the closet. Jackie saw the girl from the co-ed shower, a car accident victim, even the little boy from the emergency room, and all of them had been repaired. They practically, or maybe literally, glowed with vitality and power. Ten or more spirits came from the closet's shadows and latched onto the evil spirit. It protested and fought, but they were too strong. Together, they dragged it into the dark closet. After one final, defeated howl, the evil entity was gone. Jackie felt the cold air evaporate. The pain in her chest went with it. She collected herself and stood up. One spirit remained in the room with her. It was, of course, the camo man. Jackie, he said. His deep voice sounded comforting. You've done well. You saved us all. At the cost of your own livelihood, you gave each one of us a future beyond this world. I didn't know what else to do, Jackie said, her head still reeling from what she had witnessed. Which only tells me how pure your heart must be said the camel man. He extended a hand to her. Come with me. With you? Jackie asked. I can't go with you. I'm needed here. Jackie, the camel man said. There was something like regret in his voice now. His eyes shifted to a point behind her. Jackie turned her head. She saw herself laying twisted on the floor like a forgotten doll. Before she could say a word, she felt the camo man's strong but gentle hand slip over hers and squeeze. He pulled her lightly, and she followed him into the closet and beyond. And so the shepherdess was welcomed by her flock with open, grateful arms. You made it out. Congratulations. If you enjoyed the story, please rate and review this podcast wherever you like to listen. Reviews are the best way to support the podcast and help it grow. You can also become a patron at patreon.com slash thewarningwoods. If you want more creepy content, including the images that accompany each story, follow me on Instagram at thewarningwoods. If you feel ready, meet me here next week for another journey into the warning woods. Thank you for listening. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, 
Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.